0: Hey Tome Show listeners, it's time for Gen Con 2012 and this recording is coming to you straight from the con.
1: That's right, we present to you here an unedited recording straight from the best four days in gaming. But be aware of what that means. We did not dictate the content, we are not censoring for language, and while our editor Sam will try to make the sound as good as possible, we're in a large room trying to capture as much sound as possible, so it may not be as crisp and clear as you're used to.
0: With that said, we, as always, have to give credit to the folks who help us pay the bills around here, and that's Continue Magazine. It's a quarterly magazine for all sorts of gamers. Video, board, card, mini, and of course, RPGs. Be sure to swing by Continuemag.com, buy a magazine, and tell them thank you for supporting the podcast.
1: Well, without further ado, your Gen Con 2012 recording. Whichever one it happens to be this time around.
0: Enjoy!
2: Thank you for joining us for the D&D Next panel on monsters, magic items and DM mischief. I'm I'm Jeremy Crawford. Uh, I uh, oversee development and editing for Dungeons & Dragons at Wizards of the Coast, and I am joined by uh, three fantastic panelists this morning. Uh, We'll start with the DM to the stars on my right, Chris Perkins. Chris, please tell them what you do at Wizards.
3: I'm the senior producer at Wizards of the Coast, so my job is basically to corral products and freelancers and make sure that everything comes out on time and does exactly what we intend it to do.
2: Uh, to my left is someone you might have heard of, Mike Merles. <laughs> Mike, what do you do at Wizards of the Coast? Uh,
4: I'm the senior manager, which basically means I coordinate our efforts for RPGs, board games, digital games, everything gaming related to D&D, and then also everything story related, like the novels. So. He's the boss. And, and,
2: I, and on Mike's left, James Wyatt.
0: I'm James Wyatt. I'm creative manager, sort of, for D&D. Uh, the story part of
4: actually yes. <laughs> James's real job is he's always available available to play foosball. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow! Uh, so the story part of Mike's job uh, falls under my responsibility. I deal with story in novels, in adventures, in settings, in digital games. We work a lot with the, our uh, digital games team, primarily in licensing right now.
2: James is also a a fantastic writer, and how do you often refer to yourself when I come to you?
0: Writing monkey, give me words! (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) Often when I need text filled in, I wander over to James' desk and say, please, write this. I
0: love it. Yes.
2: Uh, So this morning, we are here to, obviously, talk about the DM side of D&D Next. Uh, But before we dive into uh, the various interesting things that we'll be discussing this morning. Uh, Chris has a D&D adventure trivia question and the, the, the correct answer to which will result in a prize.
3: Yes, I've got here with me a collection of shrink-wrapped original TSR produced adventure modules from the golden days. Um, so, if you know the answer to the following trivia question, raise your hand. Kevin Kulp AKA Pirate Cat, mentioned this adventure in Thursday's keynote but got the title incorrect. What is the adventure? <laughs> oh, shame. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. In Search of the Unknown. You are correct, sir. This is wow. yours.
0: Search of Adventure,
4: I think. That was the compilation <coughs> title,
2: yeah. Um, oh, yeah, that was that uh, fairly thick volume yeah, later. Yeah, Yeah. So there will be more of those uh, throughout the panel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Mike, would you please kick us off and just talk about the general vision for DND Next, which we've done in, in several panels, not only here and at other conventions, but focusing this time on the DM side of things. So
4: um, what we want to do with the DM side of things is uh, take a lot of cues from fourth edition, especially with regards to the mechanics and how DMs interact with the mechanics. So one of the things I'm really happy that we did with 4e was made, we made the rules very transparent for DMs to understand. Uh, we were pretty upfront with uh, if you want to make a monster, It's really simple, right? We just give you some really basic, straightforward math. Uh, You know, you just pick the monster's level, and its role, and you basically have its (coughs) core stat block and you can kind of focus on building its special abilities. Um, Things like uh, XP progressions, um, encounter building, Uh, even with the, the treasure system, it was very straightforward of here is what we expect you to have for magic items and here's the sort of schedule by which you should get them. Uh, the big change, though, is I think where 4E had some issues was things were very structured. The structure was transparent, but it was also very uh, comprehensive in a way. It was a lot of, like, you must do this by this level or things might not work. So we're kind of taking away a lot of those requirements. So while we can be pretty transparent about treasure, the actua- in play as a DM, you can say, well, I want to run a very low magic campaign, so there are no magic items. Or if there are magic items, they're just very... Uh, you know, they're wondrous things like a cloak that lets you fly or boots that let you move silently. Uh, it isn't like the players must find a plus one longsword. Uh, you know, by fifth level, or the math is wrong, things like that. So, in a lot of ways, we're preserving that transparency, but we're removing a lot of the uh, dependence on the system for DMs to take specific certain actions for the game to function properly, you know, within the math. So, that's kind of like the big picture overview. The um, in terms of um, adventure design, um, we're looking more at the adventure as the kind of unit of, of, that you build. You, know, you think, I'm going to build an adventure, and how do I want to do that? Encounter design is part of that, but it's only really as, as much of that as you want it to be. In terms of uh, if you want to build very elaborate set-piece encounters for combat, or if you want to think of it in terms of, well, okay, easy fight, easy fight, harder fight, boss fight. It, it, we're really le- we really want DMs to have a lot of flexibility in how they want to structure things. But starting with the adventure as the main, like if you're a DM, you're gonna sit down and you think, hey, I have a session on Tuesday night. What do I wanna do? You can think of it in terms of, well, i want gonna run an adventure. And in this adventure, it's almost like thinking like if you're gonna write a script for a TV show or I mean depending on how you approach it, uh, that's kinda of how I think of it. But it's epi- you know, if it's episodic, you're just thinking, okay, in this session, the players might go this way or that <coughs> way, so I might need to set up a few combat encounters for the orclear outside of town, and I might wanna think about what's going on over here, you know creating a system that is very flexible so that, as a DM, you can take whatever sort of creative approach you take to creating adventures, and then our system is ready, is ready to support it. So again, getting rid of a lot of that structure in terms of it, of it dictating what DMs have to do, but keeping that transparency so you can understand when you're doing something, the game makes sense, you understand wh- why the rules are working the way they are, and you also understand how you can change the rules and how you can modify things. So, yeah. Um, We've talked a lot about giving agency
0: back to the DM.
5: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. In, in terms of adjudicating rules as well as uh, adventure design, that sort of thing. I made a big deal in the, the fourth edition uh, Dungeon Master's Guide about saying, you know, you don't have to be a rules expert. You can delegate that responsibility to somebody else at the table, basically trying to encourage people to, to uh, feel willing to take on the, the job of being a DM. But um, we're going at it in this edition, I think, by, by making the rules a lot. Simpler, and, yeah, exactly. and, and resting more on the DM's shoulders, but it's a lighter weight,
4: yeah um, no exactly. I mean I think if it's a DM, you feel like oh, I need a rules expert to run the rules and we' probably screwed up because <laughs> you're, you're kind of telling us you want a game that doesn't have a lot of rules, and we're forcing you to have like as a like what we what I really want is like the baseline of here are the here are enough rules for the game to be functional, like you can play a game uh, to be fairly low, so you don't feel that you have to learn all this stuff that a lot of that stuff's going to be pushed away into the optional rules that. If as a DM you want that level of you know precise rules wording or very specific things that cover all these corner cases, you can choose to use that. And if you feel comfortable like, oh, I want someone at my table running that or you know, a rules caddy or whatever it is, the you can do that, but we don't want you to feel like you have to do that. And and I think that's just what I'm trying to, to get at, and so that's this clumsy like 10 a.m. at Gen Con on Friday sort <laughs> of way. Like Cesaro, it's only Friday, right? I'm already... <laughs> yeah. I, he's actually a zombie. Yeah, exactly, right. Well it's like the keynote was like the thing, so now that's done, I'm like just I'm done, I'm ready to go take a nap. <laughs> the uh, but yeah, so really making you feel like as a DM you can kinda of think of it, uh, you know, I talked at the keynote last night about like, you know, the game the rules are almost like the, the set of paints we provide and the DM's gonna make a painting and the painting's the important thing, not the paints. The uh, and so really focusing on that, letting you kinda of choose your palette and go really simple and minimalist if that's what you want. Add in more things that you know, add more detail if that's what you want, and then make your game about anything from we just go into a dungeon and kill stuff and take its treasure to well, my characters are traveling pie salesmen who would regularly you know get into pie fights with the competing no pie guild, right? Like that's <laughs> why not, right? D and D lets you do that, so why you know why not let you do that, so.
0: I think the skill system is a really good example of that and I bet Jeremy could say lots of good things about
4: that. Yeah, that was
2: just something we talked a bit about in the Creating the Core panel yesterday and it's something we'll touch on again tomorrow when we repeat that panel. So, for any of you who missed that one yesterday, come again tomorrow. Uh, As as Mike was saying, our goal is for the, the core rules of the game to be super lean and One of the main reasons for that is so that the DM can improvise with confidence. But if the DM has decided not to layer in all of the more complex rules options, he or she will still have enough to create the stories and adjudicate the combat encounters and social interactions and other sorts of exploration encounters that he or she desires and can do it, again, confidently using really just a small set of very solid rules. So the skill system that James mentioned uh, is an optional part of the game currently and it's extremely simple. Uh, If you take a look at at our packet uh, that we released earlier this week, you'll notice that the skills themselves contain no rules inside them. Um, for, you know, if, if you have, you know, tightrope walking as a skill, the skill describes the circumstances in which a character might use that skill, but it has no resolution mechanics in it. And, and th- this is a huge difference from the skill systems we've had in the previous two editions, where essentially the skill system was the resolution system for the game. Uh, because if you think back at your third and fourth edition experience, almost everything that your characters do or when you're DMing uh, often your monsters if they're doing something other than attacking or casting a spell is mediated through the skill system they're they're making climb checks or athletics checks perception checks etc we are very consciously moving into an environment where If a DM wishes, a DM only ever has to worry about making checks with the six ability scores that have been in Dungeons & Dragons since the 70s. The DM never has to worry about skills. uh, Because the skills just represent areas of extreme expertise. and, And our rule is simple. If a person has a skill and they make an ability check related to that area of expertise, they get to add in the bonus that their expertise gives them. That's it. Uh, and, and that's the kind of, of leanness that we're talking about that that will not only aid players but also make it so much easier for DMs to wing it uh, because again, if a DM wants, the DM can just go to the table and have sort of in their mind a a list of, well, this is in general the sort of thing I'll assign to intelligence checks, these other things will be charisma checks, these other things will be constitution checks. And right there, you have most of what you need to adjudicate most exploration encounters and most social interactions. And then the combat rules handle combat. A lot of this work that we're doing, as, as uh, Mike and James have talked about, is about giving the DM more agency. DMs have always had tons of agency in every edition of the game. But it is something we're, we're very consciously embracing in our work. The dungeon masters are our partners that when, you know, at the end of the day, it is you as DMs who are creating the D&D experience with your players at the game table, not us. We're certainly doing it with our players when we're DMing and we can give you all sorts of fantastic tools in our products to aid you as DMs But it is you, as storyteller, as rules adjudicator, as adventure designer, as world creator, uh, as, you know, birther of gods. uh, You are the one who is creating the Dungeons & Dragons experience at your table. And, And so we take that very seriously in how we're approaching the DM side of things. That we need to do everything we can to empower you to do that ably and simply. And, and for us to take as much of the homework as we can out of DMing. Uh, we, want, we want it to be a pleasure for you. Uh, this is one way, and here I'll segue into magic items. We touched on it briefly. Um,
0: I think Chris had something. Oh,
2: sorry. No, I was just going to say, how many of you are currently actively
3: a DM? Good stuff. Thank Great. you. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> we love um, you.
3: <laughs> yeah, our, our job, our existence... Um, hinges on making your lives easier. (laughs) So, and I think in the past several editions of the game we have seen efforts taken to make the DM's job easier. I know when I was working on my third edition campaign it required a lot more effort on my part in my fourth edition campaign and I want my next campaign to require a lot more effort than my fourth edition campaign does. And so that's sort of one of the things I in the back of my head is how much prep time does a DM have to do to really make their game rock their player's world. And before you jump into magic items, another trivia question: Uh, What's the name of the adventure that inspired the Savage Tide adventure path? Yes, sir. Aldrich. You got it.
2: Magic items. I mentioned wanting to take some of the homework out of the game. Uh, at, as many advances as there were in fourth edition for the Dungeon Master. I mean, I, I know, for, you know for myself, having DM'd every edition of the game, fourth edition in some ways had the best tools for me as a DM in terms of making my life fairly easy in comparison. The one area that has always sort of jabbed at me as a DM in the last five years is magic items. And this is, when I think of homework, this is what I'm usually thinking of. And, and the reason for that is we all know that because of, because of the math in the past edition, and this was actually true behind the scenes in third as well, un- unless characters had particular enhancement bonuses at particular levels, they were falling behind the math curve. And so there became this sense of entitlement about magic items. And so a thing that should really feel wondrous and truly like a reward became an entitlement on the player side and an obligation on the DM side. Hence my my referring to it as homework. Um, You know, it is the piece in my preparation where I always feel, okay, now here's the part I have to do to serve the system. And, and our philosophy for the DM is the system should always be serving the dungeon master, not the other way around. And so our vision for, for magic items is to make them wondrous, and as Mike, as Mike mentioned, optional. Uh, you could have a game where half the party or no one in the party gets a magic item and the system will function. Um, our, we have built the underlying math of the game so that it will work without the introduction of magic items. There will be consequences, and we'll make those consequences very clear to the dungeon master, but there is no sort of catching up that player characters will have to do through the acquisition of magic items. Uh, as Mike mentioned, too, about you know, the, 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 the wings of flying and, and, and that sort of thing, or cloak of invisibility, we want our magic items to have vivid and easy-to-grok effects, and, and, and that will be often character-defining, uh, rather than, again, sort of serving the math. Any, anything you guys want to add about magic items? Let's see.
3: We'll I, I, as soon. a DM, sorry. Go mm-hmm. ahead, I said we'll have them soon. <laughs> I sure hope so. Yeah. Um, as a DM, I, wa- I don't want to have to deal with issues of the 25th level characters going out and trying to find a place to buy a 1,125,000 gold piece magic item and the the, just the nonsensical world that has to sort of unfold to make that happen Um, figuring out ways to build magic items that don't become this linchpin of the D&D economy and can, one magic item could literally bankrupt an entire nation. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The 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 economy is on our our long list of things to address uh, in the next edition, so that it is it is a bit more sensible. And as a part of that project, uh, we are no longer assuming that uh, player characters can readily make magic items. Uh, magic items again will largely be the domain of the dungeon master. Now. The dungeon master, being, being the, the narrator for his or her campaign, will certainly have the option to create a campaign setting where magic items are plentiful, and where people can walk into a shop and buy them, and people can craft them. That simply won't be the default assumption for the game. The default assumption will be, you know, these are items of, of ancient eras that must be found. And, and must be earned on adventures, uh, with some minor exceptions. You know, things like you know, healing potions that that apothecaries have, have have retained the knowledge for creating, another minor magic that characters like wizards might be able to craft.
3: Another yeah. trivia. Sorry, tribute question. Sure, go for it. Thank, Thank you. you. Give away free stuff is cool. Um, this adventure, en français, château d'Amalfi. <laughs> was inspired by the Avalon stories of Clark Ashton Smith. Castle Amber. Castle Amber was always one of my favorites, because it had this crazy loco family that were all just holed up in this mansion for no particular reason, <laughs> all out to kill each other, but somehow never finding each other in the rooms, I don't know, yeah. it was awesome.
4: The. Um... Oh, so I want to throw in one more thing about magic items. So um, with the assumption being the DMs have a lot of control over magic items, and then you can let players buy and sell them if you want and all that stuff, uh, it lets us design the items without worrying about accidentally breaking your game because the item will only show up if you as a DM decide to give it to a player. You know, So something like Wings of Flying, we can just say, Wings of Flying, let you fly. Uh-huh. Done. <laughs> <laughs> like, because we don't have to worry about. Well, maybe it's only for like one round per fight or something like that. Like what? Would <laughs> <we balance>?
6: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
4: exactly.
5: Exactly. Yeah.
4: So, so you know, just because you know. The, the, the thing is that that just makes it more sensible in the world. Like, yeah, who would make items swings that don't actually work, right. and, the, and, and spend one point two five million gold pieces on them? But the uh, you know, because we know as, as DMs, we're 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 letting you opt into this or opt out of it or, or do with it as you will. You know, and the uh, you know, no matter what we try to do with the magic item system, like if something, there's always a chance a, a thing could go wrong in your campaign. Right? And we'd rather just be up front with DMs and give good advice of well, if an item isn't working out if you thought this would happen and you added it and now this is happening instead. We'd rather just give you guys good advice on how... how to take it away! That. Exactly, That's old
6: school! <laughs>
4: That's part of the fun, right? Um, because I, I, I think no matter what, you know, again, this is going to come up no matter what, right? We've seen it happen every edition of the game and, and trying to, to worry too much about what could go wrong leads us to doing fairly timid design. If instead, I'd much rather have us focus on what would be exciting, what would be interesting, you know, instead of worrying all the time. You know?
0: That's a really funny example of the whole idea of giving agency back to the DM and the fact that we are not the designers of your game, in effect. Um, on the one hand, giving the DM advice about how to take away a magic item that has, has overpowered your game. On the other hand, errata. <laughs>
2: And we would much rather give you advice. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk a bit more about monsters. In the, in the latest... In, in the latest packet, uh, you will see a new stat block format, and since the first playtest packet, uh, the monsters have, have undergone uh, quite a few changes. They have new abilities, uh, their numbers are different, uh, you'll notice that a number of the monsters share abilities. Uh, this is a direction we're going in uh, with our monsters, monster design. So you'll notice, for instance, several monsters who have an ability called Mob Tactics, and if you read it, it actually does the same thing. Uh, this, this is an approach we're taking. Uh, it's different from what we've done in the last five years, where like, if, you, if you look at five uh, monsters from fourth edition, they each might have a power with the exact same name, and none of those powers do the same thing, um, <laughs> or vice versa. Yeah. yeah, or you might. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and this time around, if if two monster ability, I mean, if two monsters have abilities with the same name, those abilities do the same thing. And this is an example of the kind of thing we're doing to make your life easier as a DM, because we want you once you've mastered mob tactics. To be able to go to a new monster and see, oh, I know what this ability does. I don't even need to read it. I've, read, I've, I've already run these monsters, other monsters that have this ability ten times. I'm good to go. I and, can,
0: and never once did you have to go to a glossary in the back of the Monster Manual to look it up. Because it's there in the stat block.
2: Right, right. I mean that, and that's something that we have taken to heart from uh, our fourth edition stat blocks, is that it is so valuable for DMs to have all the information there at their fingertips for running a monster. Uh, so that's not something that we're going to uh, back away from. I mean, we, it's something we all enjoy as DMs, and we will continue it. Uh, now, we might at some point do a condensed stat block in an adventure somewhere where you might need to go to a glossary, but that, that certainly would not be our, our default uh, for presenting a monster, uh, say, in a, in a product like a monster manual. Uh, Also, right now, uh, we have a large story project going on having to do with monsters. And James, uh, would you please tell us a bit about that project?
0: Sure. Um, So a couple times a week currently, uh, Mike and Matt Cernet and uh, one of our art directors, Dan Jelen, and I are sitting down in a little conference room um, and just going through some of the most iconic monsters of D&D. And... I, I always bring four monster manuals to that meeting. We lay out the page for a specific monster from every edition and talk about what it is, what it does, what it looks like, what its habits are, um, to make sure that, that we're finding kind of the consensus in every edition, and to make sure that, you know, if you like the fourth edition cyclopses that are slaves of the Fomorians, you can still do that, even if that's not the default direction that we're presenting. Um, <clears throat> so the results of those meetings are, are showing up uh, on the column I've been writing for the D&D website, which I need to write like three of them, when uh, the plane home. Um, wandering Monsters comes out on Wednesdays? Uh, it comes out on Tuesdays. Tuesdays. Shows how much attention I'm paying. Um, <laughs> where uh, basically I've been trying to take a compare and contrast approach. Orcs and gnolls have a lot of similarities. They're both these chaotic rampaging humanoids. What's the same about them? What's different about them? Um, and that's an area where we really want your feedback. I've been asking at the end, does this look like an orc to you? Um, and that's feedback that we're taking seriously and making sure that we're presenting orcs as, as you guys think of orcs as being. But then the end result of that, we want to build our own internal guides that are probably going to look a lot like monster manuals that say, here's what orcs are, and whatever expression of D&D you're engaging with, whether it's a, a digital game or a novel or a, a, a board game or you know the D&D RPG, you're going to recognize the orcs that you see there. Um, of course, as a DM, you are free to completely ignore that information um, and say, "No, actually, orcs in my world are seafaring pirates, and uh, they're very sophisticated. Actually, they're they're odonti, Is that what it was? Farming
4: orcs who are very nice and pleasant, if you want." That. It's said al dente. <laughs> <Orcs>. <laughs>
2: they're delicious with the marinara sauce. <laughs>
3: If you've been doing, uh, if you've been practicing your your uh, D&D Next, uh, if you've been basically running a D&D Next mini-campaign using the playtest documents that are out there, you may have noticed, or you might start to notice as we release more materials and your characters start to get a higher level, that you don't need to create a bunch of orcs of different levels um, like you do in 4th edition. The orcs that we create will remain valid antagonists throughout adventurers' careers. You don't have to, as a DM, explain well, why does this island have level 10 orcs running around? And what (coughs) happened to all the level 1 orcs in the world? Did they just all die off in the past, you know, four days? (laughs) Because, you know, a typical campaign go from level 1 to 30 in three weeks, right? at least in mine um, so it's, it's very interesting to me and I'm looking forward to creating sort of the definitive versions of different monsters and not have to just artificially scale them up and then explain why are these 29th level orcs just showing up now oh, Right. Yeah.
2: Right. And, and, and this touches on something that uh, we talked about in the creating the core panel yesterday and that is in the system we are reigning in number inflation, and one of the reasons we're doing this is so that, as Chris says, you can have an orc just be an orc, and you can keep using orcs as long as you want to in a campaign. And largely it's just going to mean as the, the heroes get higher level, they're just gonna be more orcs. Uh, but the orc... 30 300. Yes, <laughs> right, right. And, we're, and there are two main reasons why we're taking this approach. One, again, is to make the DM's life easier. It, it means that once you have mastered the orc, the hobgoblin, the goblin, the gnoll, etc., 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 you've got it. And you can go back to that monster and reuse it and not suddenly have the Axe, Crasher, Myrmidon, orc face who's 21st level and has a series of abilities that you have to relearn uh, because they may or may not have any relationship to just the orc that you used uh, 20 levels ago. Uh, And also this touches on something else that Chris said, we're doing this for world building reasons. Uh, So much of our approach for a DM material going forward, going back to this idea of giving the dungeon master agency is giving the DM great tools for creating adventures and worlds and as a part of that effort, we want to make sure we are not, aren't putting things into the game that basically plant these landmines of absurdity into your campaign settings. Where suddenly, you know, you're, you're basically hoping, no one asks the question of where were these 29th level orcs and why haven't they wiped out all life on the planet? You know? <laughs> Because, really, they are powerful enough that they could go into the villages that were at the beginning of your campaign and kill everybody and probably do it in a matter of one or two rounds uh, so we again we don't want absurdity bombs waiting for you as a DM we want you to be able to build worlds and build them confidently
3: uh, monster related trivia question for another adventure uh, this adventure gave birth to the you want- yes sir Lord. no sir good guess good adventure the fellow behind you
6: yeah uh- I
3: don't know. <laughs> you are correct, sir. Well done.
0: I love that adventure.
4: Oh, but I hate snakes.
0: <laughs> I love
4: snakes. <laughs> you hate snakes? Oh yeah. It's like the other thing you have in common with. Indiana Jones, the one being that you recovered the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, Little known fact, I have the Ark of the Covenant at my desk at Wizards of the Coast. Uh, it's like a coffee table.
2: It's great. <laughs> Just don't touch it. because
4: It's like a prank you do when the new guys. like, hey, touch the Ark.
2: Touch yes. the Ark. <laughs> Every D&D book, when I'm reviewing the galleys for it, I
4: lay them upon the Ark of the Covenant. So the. Um. Um, <laughs> So the um, I want to get back to real quickly something Jeremy mentioned too about thinking about monsters in, in context of the world uh, of the world right the, the world of D and D you know if you look at the current playtest packet uh, when we were working on the stats for the monsters a lot of it was thinking you know if you if the whatever the monster is like attacked the village or was fighting the, the town guardsmen what would happen right so you can kind of picture okay, okay as an orc. In Orc with the Great Axe, with one hack, you could take down you know, a first-level fighter, right? Like a guy, a warrior, like in the Shield and Sword, who's defending the town, that orc could take him on one blow. And it may be, may be a little bit of a lucky blow, but we know orcs are kind of big, tough, powerful guys with big weapons. It would, that, would be lo- that would make sense in the story, right? If you're watching a DD movie or reading a DD novel, <laughs> as opposed to, say, a group of goblins, where you think, okay, one goblin against the, the town guardsmen, the town guardsman can beat the goblin. There needs to be like maybe two or three goblins who gang up on him. And then we start thinking, well, how does, what does, how does that fight play out? You know, the goblins are kind of shifty and they're kind of cowardly, but if they can outnumber you or ambush you or stab you in the back, that's when they're really dangerous. Or things like kobolds, where if you can imagine the kobolds attack the village, it's just this swarm of like lemming-like kobolds just charging in. And there might be a smart kobold in the back who's kind of kicking them in the butt to get them to go in, but but the kobolds defeat the town. This poor town guard who keeps getting killed by a series of monsters by you know like jumping on top of them. And there's three or four kobolds who pull them down or just bashing with clubs, or you know, or maybe the kobolds are using their slings or short bows, and they're pretty deadly if they're skirmishing. But once you get up close to them, they just they just flee.
0: Or they lure you out into the woods and drop you in a pit. Yeah. Exactly, drop scorpions
4: Yeah, exactly. But you can kind of think then it starts telling us a little bit of the story of the world. Like, do the kobolds attack the village? No, probably not, unless there's like, some evil force behind it. The kobolds are probably more likely to sneak into the village and maybe steal things if they, you know, if they want to mess with the humans or whatever. They're not really likely to attack because their tactics are a little more passive. They're more, let's lure the guy into the trap. Let's you know use slings or ranged weapons and, 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 and scatter when someone gets close. Kind of do this horde tactic thing only if we kind of have to. Um, The same with goblins, right? And you kind of start seeing now this sort of ecology starts to... build. It's almost like the ecology of the Caves of Chaos, right? If you have this dungeon apartment complex with all these monsters living in, how do they get along? Or who's the loud neighbor? Who's the guy who's always... Calling people like oh, you know, turn you know, turn on the music or complaining. You know, the recycling hasn't been taken out yet, right? And, the, uh, and
0: who enforces the noise? Is it the exactly ogre? it's
4: the, right. the ogre. Well, he's never paying him, right? The ogre shows up, and if you give the ogre money, he lets you keep your stereo on. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but there they're even things like that. Now we're thinking about it. You know, and and the last playtest packet, we actually went back and scorched all the uh, the flavor text, just because we we're kind of thinking, well. In, in the monsters. Yeah, and the monsters. Yeah, and just entirely, right? It's all just math. But no, yeah. In yeah, the monsters. <laughs> the, um, because we just realized we don't really have this stuff completely settled yet, so we'd rather just kind of remain silent. Because we assume most people who've been playing Dungeons & Dragons know what an ogre is, so we don't feel the need to tell you again. The um, and, and what we want at the end of the day, when we do have that text ready and we're ready to share with you, it's something that, that like you know uh, James mentioned, it, it rings true, right? You're not like, oh, I never knew that about it. Oh, that's weird. I didn't that's unexpected. It's more like, oh, like, if it's unexpected, it's more the thing of, oh, I never put those two dots together, but that actually makes a lot of sense. Oh, yeah, that's how that's how ogres would work, right? Okay, yeah, you know, like, they can be bribed, they're kind of lazy, or things like that. Or what's really exciting, because we were just talking about giants a couple weeks ago, you know, uh, there's this book called uh, Giant Craft that came out during second edition that talked a lot about giants. And so these kind of funny little things have come up. Uh, for instance, it talks about hill giants, and for each giant it kind of says, here's the thing these these giants value. And for hill giants, it was eating contests. <laughs> which seems kind of funny, but then you're like, well, that kind of explains why hill giants go and raid villages. Like, they want food, right? They like, they're like they hungry all the time, but they like to eat. They're these big gluttons. So, you know, when the hill giants attack the village and there's our first level fighter human guard who's all you know, cry, you know it's giants, this time I'm dead. Yeah. The hill giants actually ignore him, right? They, they're busy picking up cows or, you know, smashing and, you know, trying to raid the tavern to get, you know, the kegs of ale. They'd actually rather not fight the guy, right? They're just kind of like... These sort of like dim-witted, you know, chaotic evil frat boys, right? (laughs) (laughs) They'd rather not fight you. They're just here for, you know, the food and the beer, right? But you know, that kind of thing where we can kind of start putting that flavor more into the monsters and into our adventures, into the settings, where, okay, yeah, these guys are a little more distinct, they're a little more interesting, but it's all stuff that's been there, right? Like The Giant Craft was published like 20 years ago. It's not like we're just making all this stuff up from scratch, so we're just kind of going back and finding that lore and bringing it to the forefront. We've gotten a lot of feedback
0: that uh, most of you like the second edition monstrous Monst- Monst- Compendium and Monsters Manual as uh, a guideline for what a monster entry should look like with a paragraph or two about combat, and then three or four paragraphs, five or six paragraphs, about habitat, society, ecology, how these monsters fit into the world. So... That's the direction we're gazing at right yeah. now,
4: and, and, and that's something interesting too.
6: Yeah.
4: I'll I'm sorry if I interrupt the applause. So. The, um, but we've even talked about it in terms of presentation. You know, like uh, if you think of a monster, say like an ogre mage, who, who might have a couple like tricks up his sleeve, like chain self or some illusion abilities, or whatever. The uh, you know when we present monsters, we want to be aware of if a monster has a lot, a lot of non-combat magical, abil- magical abilities, if we're giving you a stat block, an adventure, where we think you're going to fight this guy, like, we, maybe we don't, we don't put those in there, just for, in terms of saving space, and, and brevity, and DM focus, like, when you're running that encounter with the table. Um, but that might be, like, in the monster manual, or where we're presenting them, we might have an entire extra, like, stat block or presentation of, like, non-combat abilities. You know, like, the... The, the, the djinn that can give you wishes, right? Like he doesn't use that when he fights you, but if you're, you know, th- that might be under a, a social header or an interaction header. You know, you can imagine combat, interaction, exploration all being parts of that. You know, so the green slime is actually not a really interesting monster to fight. It's actually scarier when you're exploring because you might, you know, it might drop on you while you're, you're poking your way down the, the uh, you know, a passageway in a dungeon, or you might accidentally find it by, you know, sticking your hand in a clay pot The cold's had it. Oh, that's full of green slime. Oops, right? And I liked having two hands, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I missed that. that I had a 30 seconds ago before I stuck my hand in here. But but that kind of lets us, when we think of monsters, now we're not just thinking, oh, these not all the monsters, kind of like I was describing before, charge into the village to attack our hapless, versatile fighter, town guardsmen. Some of them talk to it. Some of them show up to trade, right? Some of them are just lurking off in the dungeon. To, you know, the Yellow mold doesn't hate anyone. It just gets kind of—it just shoots spores when you get close to it. Right? It's not like it's not personal, right? It it's is, like it its uh, a—it's yeah, it a to whom it may concern attack, right? It needs a hug, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but but just things like that, or like the shrieker, right? You don't fight shriekers. Shriekers just make noise, right? Because that's just part of the dungeon ecology. But we can still present that as a creature in the world of D and D. But we're no longer just thinking of well, maybe the creature has like sound burst or sonic powers or it can fly. Right? We're not—we're not trying to make these things into just combat pieces. where... They're, they are denizens of a fantasy world. Yeah, they're, they're world-building pieces. Exactly. And,
2: and certainly many of them will be uh, participants in battles, uh, but many of them will be there for role-playing encounters, as, as Mike is suggesting, and exploration encounters. What this means is it, it, you won't see it in the yeah. near term, but long term expect to see the return of uh, quite a few good aligned creatures. Oh, yeah. Uh, In in the previous edition, a lot of good aligned creatures has sort of taken a a backseat at the very, very back of the bus. uh, With even some classic good creatures like the metallic dragons suddenly not being good anymore. Uh, You're going to see the return again of a lot of good creatures. Uh, Because again, our philosophy is a monster manual shouldn't be filled with just combatants. It is. it is also filled with just the denizens of your world and that means many creatures that are there not to fight you but to aid you to talk with you sometimes to give you riddles. To, yeah to give you riddles um, sometimes they will even fight you if you if you end up at odds with them because uh, fail failed to answer their riddles yes yeah yeah I mean I certainly have had campaigns where good good uh, Heroes and good creatures are fighting against each other because they have different political aims. Uh, they're members of different factions, uh, so there, there certainly is a place uh, for such things uh, in our
4: worlds. It's actually been pretty fun when we talk about good creatures, like the and good giants, uh, good 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 dragons, and things. To think, like, well, in a world in the world of D and D, if you have these really powerful good-aligned creatures, like, what? Why are they sitting on their asses all the time? <laughs> like, there's a lot of like bad stuff going on. This poor first level town guardman keeps getting murdered by goblins, and the gold dragon is just kind of. Eh, I got better things to do, right? And so it's been kind of fun to to think, well, what is actually the reason? Why would that happen, right? And it's, you know, you it's actually kind of inspiring to think like, well, what is the mindset of like the powerful storm giant lord who's like this chaotic kind of good guy? But maybe he's kind of off, like on his mountaintop, airy, and he doesn't. Like, he might be a really nice guy, but he might just kind of have like a non-interventionist attitude toward the rest of the world or or whatever, right? But just this idea that there might be these powerful good figures, but how can we make them so if they are interesting and especially kind of hammer home that idea this guy really isn't an interaction encounter because maybe he is the guy who can conjure up a storm that can you know just smash the pirate fleet that's going to attack that you know, yeah but the he'd rather
3: spend all day on the
4: internet <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, yeah. yeah she has the enthusiasm everything yeah, yeah. But, but that might be it's like suck <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah make gold dragon friends on his facebook yeah. page
6: yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Now, oh, go ahead. So, but but then that may be something where like in, the, in that monster entry, like the first thing we might show you might just be like, this is why cloud giants are, are the way they are, and it's actually these are like there is a combat section, but that might be the last thing to show you, because we don't really expect you're going to fight these guys. You're probably more likely to be going to them and saying, hey, can you? We need help. What, what do we need to do? And we, when we write the monster, we we'll might have we'll have that thing in mind, right? We're going to create, think about this creature, think about the story in terms of that. You might be going to it for help, you know, and what? How do the storm giants think of? humans and humanoids and like the lesser races and and other monsters and creatures and really create that as a fabric of the world. Yeah, they're
0: just a fad.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And a big big piece to how we approach good aligned creatures like the gold dragon, the storm giant, uh, but even many of our evil creatures is to take note of the frequency notes in early editions of the game. Um, and also to return to myth and folklore uh, when we consider a monster's place in the world. I say this because in the last 10 years, there's been this, I often refer to it as the science fictionization of Dungeons and Dragons, where suddenly every monster turns into a species. Like instead of instead of there being uh, the Medusa, a a woman who was cursed, suddenly there is the race of Medusa's a la the Bajorans from, you know, Star Trek or some other science fiction genre. Now, we will still give you the option as a DM to do that sort of thing. But for many of these creatures, our, our default assumption will be there is the Medusa. Or there is, probably in a typical setting, a storm giant.
6: You
2: know, in your world, there might be two gold dragons in the whole world. Or maybe in your world, there's a whole flight of them. Uh, but again, we—if you can rouse them from their slumber—yeah, yeah, exactly. We we will take very seriously that there there are consequences if we if we suddenly give the impression that you know the the default D and D world is overrun by countless numbers of all of these creatures, uh, which again turns into one of those absurdity bombs that I was referring to earlier. Uh, again, as a DM, you can do whatever you want. Uh, you could decide, I, I want minotaurs to be as numerous in my world as dwarves. Yeah. Awesome. Do it. That's probably not going to be our assumption.
4: Yeah. Well, and that's really because you know, we were we were talking about those guys, you know, with the the myth of uh, the minotaur being, you know, like the the, the big burly monster in you know in the labyrinth, whatever, and treat and all that stuff, you know, and and we also. You know, introduce them as a race, in part <clears throat> inspired by Dragonlance. And that might, that might be something where when we present them as monsters, we're pretty clear, okay, the, the Minotaur is the big giant monster in the labyrinth, and here's the story behind that. And so when you first encounter Minotaur in D&D, it might be in a labyrinth, and it might be tied to Baphomet, and the idea of like a, of being a Minotaur is maybe a curse, that, or it might even be a gift from Baphomet to his followers and things like that. But then we also have Minotaurs as player characters, because in Dragonlance, uh, you know, you have the Imperial... Uh, Whatever the Imperial League or whatever it's called, metalists, right? And it's Minotaurs of this Roman feel, and the uh, you know we can be pretty upfront about saying Minotaurs in you know in a vacuum are these mythological creatures, you know, labyrinths, tied to and all this stuff. And Minotaurs as player characters, here's an example of from Dragonlance how that might work, right? Instead of trying to say, oh, in all settings now you can be a, a Minotaur fighter, we can say, well, here's how Dragonlance handled that, and in this world, here's what it looks like. Now, those game mechanics are there for you to use. If you wanted to include that as a player character race, you just dupe those stats over tell players, hey, you can, you can play the Taladus Minotaur, and that is a playable Minotaur. But we're not trying to say in all d d settings, oh, in Greyhawk now we have to account for that, or in the realms and things like that. We can be truer to something, and I think it's probably more useful, and this, from my experience, it's more useful for me as a DM if I see these, like a potential player character race, not just as, oh, it's a monster that you can just play, but it's given a context. I can say, oh, it's kind of cool to have like Roman-themed, you know, this culture, this imperial culture that's kind of on this other continent. Or, you know, I'm going to just take those numbers and make up my own story for it. You know, but again, giving DMs those options and not trying to, to put everything, make everything core and may have, okay, now everything has to play together. How can we make sense of this? How can we have the big, burly, Minotaur in the maze and also have, like, the heroic Minotaur Paladin, like, you know, does that really make sense? And, and are we trying to kind of stretch the story in a way?
0: And the yak folk.
4: We yeah, need the yak folk. Yak folk. And James really likes yak folk.
0: I love the, the yakaria.
4: Yicar- <laughs> we, were, we were walking, so we had this, man, this is when we had the meeting, we were talking about these guys, and you put yak folk on the board, and I was like, I don't think yak folk are on the list we do. <laughs> <laughs> but that's another thing, too. Like, I think when you look at D&D, D&D is full of crazy, weird monsters, and... I think it'd be awesome to get it. I, I, I want to go through I mean, We're, we're kind of starting with, like, what are the top 100 monsters? But I'd love to, like, have, like, and here are the top 1,000 monsters at some point. But, you know, eventually get to everything. That's going to take a long time. But we definitely, like, what makes D&D kind of cool and unique is there are all these weird critters that have been made over the years, you know? And some of them are kind of cool and interesting. Like, um, trying to think of a, a, a nifty new monster, uh, you know, like the Yankee kind of rose up and became, you know, that's kind of an iconic critter. Or are there any like newer creatures you guys can think of, things that have risen to prominence over the? I keep thinking of like, like new monsters that were lame, you know, like the Gambado and stuff, like whatever. Like <laughs> it's it's D and D, you know, like maybe the gambado isn't the first monster we'll get to, but it's it's like it's not like anyone else's corner of the market on Gambados. So Well,
2: I mean they're I mean actually a great example of a of a humanoid race that has has risen to prominence is the Dragonborn. Yeah. I mean, oh exactly, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although I mean the Dragonborn have existed at least visually uh, since first edition where they were essentially the Draconians in Dragonlance. Yeah. And, and, but now they have, they have they've really captured a number of people's imaginations as, as a playable race. Yeah.
0: And, and reinforcing what Mike said on the stage of the keynote last night, he informed me in no uncertain terms that we would be talking about the flunk.
4: Well, the flumps are the great example. It's not a monster you fight, it's a monster you laugh at. (laughs) And it's lawful good for some reason, right? But getting back to something Jeremy mentioned, you know, when you think of like things that have traditionally been kind of monsters or villains like uh, tieflings, uh, well, tieflings are players in Planescape, characters in Planescape, uh, and Dragonborn, that's something where, again, we don't feel the need. We have to give this really long canonical thing about oh Dragonborn are now in the Forgotten Realms and they have these kingdoms and lands and realms like we can be a lot more like you know almost like a half dragon kind of like well maybe these guys are rare like you know or you know come up with a story that it makes them self-contained you know like the Minotaur has a nice self-contained story and it can be as big in your world as you want or as small as you want now, obviously in some of our, our published settings, things like, you know, the Kender are part of Dragonlance. And if, it, if you're talking about Dragonlance and there's a Kendor, you kinda know how they fit in. Or if you're talking about um, the Forgotten Realms and there's a, a Sun Elf versus a Moon Elf, you know, they are part of that setting. But we're talking about D&D as a whole, like the kind of tools and the stuff, the building blocks of building your own campaign. You know, I'd rather have these like self-contained stories that are kinda like these little Lego bricks that you can then put together rather than try to tell you, you know, like humans we know, like it's a weird D&D campaign, something that doesn't <coughs> as an important race but otherwise you know we don't want to assume anything and say well of course dragonborn are in, a, are in every city in every town like because we don't know that right that's up to you guys for your campaigns so but we'd like to have maybe something that's more of a, an interesting mythology around them that makes you go oh that's kind of interesting like you know, these guys have like this kind of interesting self-contained story that maybe i want to use maybe i don't but they make sense within their own context or rather than trying to like Jeremy referred to earlier, make everything to this this race that you just found everywhere, and there are millions of them, and they have cities and all that stuff. You know, kind of leaving that for you guys again, unless it's something that we know, super classic high fantasy stuff like elves, dwarves, halflings. You know, which most people, yeah, most campaigns will have those features. Sorry, I was just going to say.
3: Speaking of mythology and absurdity, I have another trivia question for you. This is a tough one. Um, this adventure took place in the Duchy of Runa where horses are ridden backward. Dwarves are shaved and stretched to make them more palatable to their human neighbors. And taxes is collected in beer. It is also the only adventure from the TSR D&D days with a Chimera on the cover. All right, I'll just leave that one out there. <laughs>
1: Yeah, man, that one
3: doesn't exist. You just made it up. Right? I totally didn't. I'm looking at it right here. <laughs> let me try. Let me try a different one. Uh, anybody ever played the old uh, TSR Top Secret game? All right. Uh, who designed it? Because he also wrote d and D adventure for the Expert set, module X six. Here's a hand back there. Oh yes, sir. I'm going to take a wild guess here, Uh No, but a fine guess. Yes, sir. Sorry?
5: Len uh, Lakofka?
3: Was not Len Lakofka, but another fine guess. Yes, sir. Skip
5: Williams.
3: Not Skip Williams, but a great guy.
6: <laughs> All
3: right, we'll just put that one aside. Any FR fans out there? All right. Uh, what is the war-torn region between Damara and Vasa? Called. There were several adventures, a series of four adventures based in that region. Yes, sir, you were the first. Yes, you are correct. Bloodstone Pass. <laughs> For you. Yes. you All
2: right. So, a, a topic that we keep touching on, and it's something that uh, we talked about. Directly about in our panel yesterday is this concept of what is core, and many of you know that uh, within the past five years our general approach has been if something is published for D and D, it's core, and that is no longer our approach. Uh, we will be actually quite upfront about what what things we assume to be in a default D and D world, but beyond that. It it is up to a setting and it's up to you as DMs in the creation of your settings, what else is a core part of your worlds. So like right now when it comes to playable races, we are only assuming as the baseline, humans, elves, dwarves, and halflings. And beyond that, again, it's up to setting and it's up to you as dungeon masters. Uh, Because we have found that going the other direction puts a tremendous amount of pressure and on, on our worlds and also makes a lot of assumptions about the kinds of worlds you want to create. And so we've, we think it is better to have sort of a leaner set of assumptions and let, and let us, as we're building settings, and let you as DMs when you're building your own settings build on top of that lean foundation. So really, it's the same approach we're taking with the rules. We want a lean foundation with options that you can build on top of it. Same with story.
0: All right, how many people right now are using their uh, smartphones to look for that adventure with (laughs) the?
3: (laughs) camera? You are correct, sir. <laughs> Is there anything exactly. you can't do?
0: I just looked at and noticed a surprising number of heads down
3: like this. <laughs> Wait, are we boring you? oh no! I got another one for you. Uh, I have another adventure here. Uh, sort of a key background player in the adventure. Uh, she's known as the Sea Mother. That's the name of the adventure, but not the Sea Mother. He said doable. Yes. Can you spell it? <laughs> <laughs> this is a good one because this is the original.
4: Ooh. We're at sixty gold pieces on eBay. <laughs> Which is like a lot of money, that's a lot of gold. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Very small pieces. Yeah. yeah. So,
2: so on the topic of world building, uh, let's talk briefly about cosmology. This is, this is a, a topic near and dear to DM's hearts. We can't go into a lot of details now, but we can talk about our approach. James?
0: Okay. So the way I think about cosmology is there is nobody in the universe that can step back and look at all the planets every arrangement of planes that that there is in, the, in any D&D rulebook is somebody's interpretation of how they all fit together. You can walk from Mount Celestia <laughs> to Batopia, but in order to do that, you've got to go through portals. So, sure, maybe it seems like they're next to each other. Maybe they are. But nobody knows that. So, I think it's perfectly possible for any cosmology you want to come up with or any of the classic d and cosmologies to fit together to, to be options that you can use in your game without really messing with anything. Um, is the elemental plane of fire a separate thing or is it part of a larger churning chaos of elements? I don't know. <laughs> um, and you can make a call on that uh, but fundamentally we can present fire elementals either way um, without relying on one answer or the other. So, Great Wheel or Astral Sea, it's up to you.
2: Yeah, and so what, what James is getting at is, even when it comes to cosmology, our approach is to give DMs the tools that they need to create the worlds and the cosmoses that they want to create. And so rather than us picking a particular version of the, DM, of the D&D cosmology and saying, this is it this time, uh, we're going to say, uh, here are a, an array of options. And again, we will make some default assumptions, and we will say, you know, if you want to just have something pre built for yourself and, and run with it, we will, we will present the classic Great Wheel. Uh, but we will provide all sorts of suggestions for customizing that cosmology, ways to incorporate the Shadowfell, the Feywild, uh, and, and other uh, planar options that have appeared in, in products like Planescape. Uh, in, in, an, in a variety of our worlds. Again, it is about giving you the tools to create the d experience that you want to create.
4: Yeah, because really what's important are the places rather than necessarily the connective tissue. So we'll talk about the plane of fire, but where you put the plane of fire is is up to you. Now, you know, and we'll have examples, right? Like, obviously, everyone knows the Great Wheel, you know, things like that. And you could see, okay, this is how it's arranged, or even something like in Planescape, where obviously the planes are a little important in Planescape. You know, that might just, well, okay, this is how the planes work in Planescape because Planescape is all about going to different planes and having these different locations and creating a cohesive setting that is really rich in that flavor and, and, and works for it. But then that lets us say, well, we don't necessarily have to take what Planescape says about the cosmology or the plane, how Planescape functions and say, well, and that's how Greyhawk works, right? Or that's how the Dragonlance planes work, because you can get, to, you know, to, into Planescape from any setting we've ever published, right? Again, focusing on more of the destinations rather than the connective tissue, and obviously, in our published worlds, we'd explain, okay, in the Forgotten Realms, this is how you get from plane to plane because that you know, is a feature of that setting, but letting DMs for your own campaigns come up with your own ways of handling that. You know, if your campaign has a lot of plan- planar travel or wars between planes or, you know, the outer the elemental planes are encroaching on the prime material world or your setting, you know, things like that. You know, what's really important just for you is like, okay, here's the plane of fire and we can kind of describe it and monsters can refer to it, but how those monsters travel about, how they interact with the world, that, that's up to you. So, you know, we want to be flexible with it. We don't really, we want to kind of move away from being very canonical of here is the structure Because again, that that speaks more to the connective tissue, which I don't think is as important or compelling as those destinations, those locations, those names, you know, Plane of Fire, uh, the Nine Hells, the Abyss, things like that. That's the interesting part. The rest, in some ways, is just really determined by your campaign.
0: I think the Feywild is a really interesting sort of case study. Um, It's a a plane that a lot of people love uh, that I think has a tremendous amount of potential. But really, when we present the Dryad in the Monster Manual, it doesn't matter whether it's a native of the Feywild or if it's something that's found in remote forests. And we can present it to you and let you use it either way. I think actually the the full potential of the Feywild is realized when you decide that's going to be a really important part of your campaign. And you want that that sense of the possibility of crossing from world to world and entering this mystical realm of fairy uh, and and having weird things happen while you're there and time flowing strangely. if, if that's not what you want in your D&D campaign, you might not have any use for the Feywild at all. I think the same thing applies to the Far Realm, um, It was introduced in the second edition as this kind of weird out there thing that nobody had ever known about before, and it became more and more core. And that's great if you want to run kind of a Lovecraftian flavored campaign where mind players are, are alien beings from uh, a universe with completely different rules but maybe you just want to make them live down in the Underdark. That's okay too and, and that's not an answer that has to be dependent on whichever cosmology we give you.
4: Yeah, and that's something too where when we're thinking about how we're presenting stuff you know, it, we have a lot of you know directions we have to, you know, things we have to go through and pick how we want to present it. But we might in, you know, when we present, here's the mind player, like in a monster manual whatever, we might just talk with the Underdark and kind of give them a very classic treatment. But then if we have, like, the Far Realm expansion, then we can kind of go back and say, well, here's how all this stuff now connects together in this new interesting way. You know, and that might also set up for us to do other expansions, other flavor and rules modules that can combine to really change your DV campaign in an interesting way, right? Like, Fae being another example, right, where when we talk about Dryad, the Monster Manual, again, kind of focusing on how does, how does the dryad interact with the people from the village and give you that very down-to-earth, like, uh, you know, like level one to five treatment, right? How does this interact with the world? And not really go on and on about like, well, here's the Fae Court and all this other stuff because we can introduce those sort of things. And then again, tie those back into those core descriptions rather than, a lot, rather than trying to force the core description to carry a lot of that weight you know, folks are making that really flavorful, but again, kind of, again, that idea of the independent box, like this thing can exist of its own, you know, or if it does have connections, it's connections to other things that, for instance, we're putting into the Monster Manual. So we might say, for instance, you know, driders and drow have a connection, right? Because that's just part of their identity. Uh, Hobgoblins and goblins are known to work together, but we know when we present these guys, they're in the same source. So you're getting a complete picture we're not constantly pointing out to other things and then making you think, okay, well, how's my cosmology gonna work? Because I'm using, um, you know, I'm, uh, you in my campaign. So now I need, you know, again, if we are referring to the planes, it's because we're talking about things like devils. So, okay, devils and the nine hells go together. Demons in the abyss go together, things like that. We're really focusing on those resonant connections rather than say, trying to create one, you know, unless for instance, we feel, well, in this case, this really is something that's begging for it and the creature be more interesting and easier to use because you now have a very clear conception. Again, that kind of goes back to the idea of if we have a monsters as a race, we'll use an example of something that maybe has existed before. Or maybe if we do invent something new, it's because, well, here's a specific example from something published for D&D you know, in the past you know, that we can draw on. So.
0: Um, It occurs to me, not because of anything that Mike said just now, but as a general principle, that we should say nothing we're saying here is set in stone. We're not actually writing a Dungeon Master's Guide or a Monster Manual at this point. This is all just kind of the directions that we're thinking. And um, in the same spirit as the rest of the rules play test, we're really interested in hearing your feedback about uh, these directions um, in whatever form you want to provide them.
4: Hopefully not hurled insults or thrown chairs, yeah.
0: slamming me against the wall yeah. in the hallway. Yeah. I hate
4: <laughs> getting stuck into your locker. A
2: oh, bit so, be- before we uh, transition to the Q and A, uh, Chris has another trivia question.
3: Yes, uh, the final trivia question. This is one of my favorite adventures.
2: Yeah.
3: Oh. This is the classic ray My favorite long. of all it's original time. original shrink wrap. It's been locked in a TSR vault for 50-odd years. um, um, For a long time. I will give this adventure to anybody who raises their hand who knows the names of Strahd's brothers.
4: Out come the smartphones. (laughs) Was it uh, Larry, Moe, and Curly? Daryl, Daryl, Daryl.
3: Those who know the adventure know that one of them is mentioned in the adventure; the other one is not, but is certainly part of the lore of Ravenloft. Psych. <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I he had
0: more than
3: one. Yeah, am yeah,
2: I'm, I'm happy you reminded us of that because I was thinking, wait a second, there's only one brother mentioned in the adventure. <laughs> All right.
3: Well, when you know the names of brothers, just shout them out. I'll just hang on to this.
2: All right. So for our Q and A portion, um, we would like you to please queue uh, up uh, at the microphone in the middle of the room, and we will get to as many of your questions as we can. Uh, all right. Sir, you you are already there. What is your question? Oh, and although a quick thing, I I, I say I say this in all of our D and D next panels. Uh, we cannot answer questions about uh, release dates for products, uh, the particular form of products, uh, and when I say products, this includes physical products as well as digital tools. All right, please, what would you like to know? Last
1: night, you mentioned the Sorcerer and the Warlock were going to be
6: released for playtest today with different styles of magic.
1: Are we going to be given as DMs the means to apply those styles to other classes? For example, will the wizard be able to be played as a spell point class or a fourth edition style class?
4: So I think, which, have, you, have you had a chance to, to look at the classes yet?
6: No. Okay, so I came here.
4: so the um, the what I think you'll find when you look at the sorcerer is that the easiest way to do that would just in your game erase sorcerer and write wizard, okay. and and just in your game say okay in my campaign, if I want wizards to work this way, just use the sorcerer class is what the spell casters use because really uh, the sorcerer is using is just using the spells from with right. like, the wizard list. And, so and, and what in, in our
2: current approach, these ma- sort of magic systems. Are ingrained in the class itself. They aren't. They are not currently designed as a sort of piece that you you pull out. It, they they we have created them to speak to the flavor of those classes. Uh, so if if there is enough demand, we could we could uh, provide uh, advice for dungeon masters. But it will probably amount to what Mike just said. Yeah, yeah just, it's, just, just change just, yeah. the name of the class.
0: I, I would be interested to see whether it's possible when design is is farther along to smash, uh, yank out Sorcerer's Origin and put wizard tradition in in, in its place.
4: Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, oh. that's actually a good point. That might be something, yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. So that, that's something we, that, that we might Yeah, yeah. it's so an option. The
1: flavor of the class is what they really like about the wizard, but they yeah. don't want to deal with that type of spellcasting.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, although again, they might just decide to play the other class. Yeah. Right. And because right. and, and, and the, the other thing to keep in mind, is let's say, let's say they, they like the, the scholarly flavor of the wizard, but they prefer the mechanics of the sorcerer. They could simply play a sorcerer and then using our rich background and specialty approach, take the sage background and the magic user specialty, and suddenly they feel very much like a wizard, even though you know, the class on their character sheet is sorcerer. You got it,
3: mm-hmm. Sergey and Strav. <laughs> is
2: that? Sergey is name? the one in the. Uh,
3: Sergey is in it.
2: That's one I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: Oh, is he the the? Uh, He's the, the one shrieker. who took Strav. <laughs> the shrieker. That's, That's right. The shrieker. <laughs> he got the crappy version of the curse, right. which is you get turned into a mushroom yes. <laughs> and eaten by an Italian plumber. <laughs> wow. The reference one. Wow. Nintendo dude. Wow. I question. I know. <laughs> You're acting a little horrified. Like, I just insulted it to <laughs> <say> that, <sir.
2: laughs> save us, sir. Save us from Mike. <laughs> um,
4: so,
1: uh, I, I guess I have... Two related. I will make it one question. I, I,
4: I but it might be an essay question. Yeah. Uh, and,
2: and if you do have multiple questions, try to do one now and yes, then get back yes, in it's line. It's a short line yeah.
1: currently. It, it is in fact. Okay. So one, one of the things that you have talked about in terms of, for, for putting aside the straw man of the of the, um, of the that can essentially be wrapped up in bounded actors, because of course you've got the. Um, you, you do have the mathematical solution in fourth edition simply by using inherent hypothesis. But, putting aside that straw man, you've talked about the absurdity that's sort of generated, which, you know, the, the first level followed by the 20th level more. How do you envision that absurdity to be resolved in a dD style system where you are getting characters who go from being essentially just a little better than that town's guard to someone who you know, two years later is nearly a gap. Yeah. Um, how do you resolve that absurdity just by saying there are more of them? I mean, it, why haven't... It, it's sort of just re-asking the same question. Why Why did I engage four orcs when there were 10,000? Um, so I'm, I'm curious how you envision the, the correction of only having an orc as opposed to having a triple orc to a 20-level orc as a correction of that
5: survey. Sure, so you,
2: you might actually at first level have encountered 20 orcs. Um, because, so I, I'm glad you asked this question because you will notice uh, even in the Caves of Chaos adventure that we sent out, there, there are several areas, and this is something we preserved from Gary's original design, where there are 20 plus members of a particular cave group present in a, in a room. So by, by modern adventure design standards, that is just a party grinder. You know, that, 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 that isn't even really technically an encounter so much as that is simply saying that, hey, this is a tribe and here they all are. Um, so we're addressing that by having, having areas that express the realities of that part of the world and so the player characters could indeed face the same number of orcs at first level that they will at sixth level and it's largely up to them and to, and to the DM in terms of how he or she crafts an adventure how many of them they're going to face at a time. We, we will give guidelines for you know what is a safe encounter uh, for a particular level but at the same time the DM might have next to that room that is sort of a, an encounter might have a sequence of chambers that is there simply expressing the reality of that settlement. And if, if the player characters blunder into those areas, they're toast uh, because hey, people live there.
3: Um, it seems like what we're trying to, or what you're trying to do with this D and D next is get hit the best of first, second, third, fourth edition. And let people play fifth edition like they want if they wanted to play second. Like here's in fifth you can play second, but easier and better, or third, but easier and better. So are you kind of envisioning fifth edition as like a legacy edition? Like this is going to be the the be all the end all. This is going to let you play any type of D and D that you want, and then and then where do we go from there? Or is this going to be you might not even have this down yet? Is this going to be another iteration, another? 5.0. That there, then maybe we have another
4: direction we want to take in the future. So, so yeah. Uh, so with the modularity, that's totally what we're aiming for: is to get the sense of you can play, you can pick your play style and kind of form the game to, to support it. Uh, and I, I mentioned this, the key. I think I said this in the keynote last night, but the uh, or I said at some point to somebody. I don't know. It's been a long con already. I've been here since like Monday. The uh, this idea of this the iteration through like the really big changes, like like you know three out of three five to three seven five to three nine nine or whatever it is, right? That's kind of what we want to do with the playtest. You know, like get those big questions answered, and get like, the big things fixed. There's always going to be things that come up, right? Like in the process of publishing and, and, and working on a game of this scope. Uh, you know, we might do the monster, and we'll find, oh no, kobolds are way too powerful. They're killing everybody. We, we, we got that math wrong, or there's just a misprint, or just something that's incorrect. So there's always going to be this, this iteration, errata, updates, and things like that. But we'd really like to be able to put behind us this idea that every five years, the rules have to really change and instead have much more of a smoother progression, like, oh, the rules have been updated, right? Like, for instance, whatever, you know, like you can almost think of it as, uh, you know, in, let's say release the game five years later, there's an update that comes out, and it's just smoothing over patches. It's maybe, I adding. Mean, let's say for instance, we have a rules module that shows up somewhere like in, in Dragon or something, and it's like, oh, people really like that. Okay, we want to move that to the DMG now. Firearm rules were a lot more popular than we thought. A lot more people want to run, you know, Renaissance-themed fantasy games, things like that. Um, and then you kind of think well what's next for us we really want to be able to focus on on stories, adventures settings, things like that the things that get people really excited about D&D and it's kind of funny because it's one of the things we've sort of learned uh, when you look at games in general, what gets people excited about playing D&D isn't oh I get to have an armor class and hit dice, it's I went into a castle, and it was a haunted castle, and it was this ancient ghost of the king, and he put a curse on us, unless we could go and, and reforge his crown, and the crown was owned by this paladin, but it turned out he's a Rakshasa, and it was all this cur- <laughs> and all this stuff, and that's when people talk about D&D, like, that's the thing, is, like, people people want to tell you about their character, and DMs want to tell you about their campaign, and people want to talk about their adventures. I mean, people do kind of like, you know, this optimization, like, hey, what's the most broken guy, guy you can make, or what's the most... but But I think... That is one subset, but I think if we just get like a hundred typical D&D gamers in a room, they'd end up talking about their characters and their campaigns. Not, I mean, I just think when I get interviewed, you because know, you know we're in the position I'm in, people, hey, you know, they want to know about d and I've never been asked what's the most damage your characters done in one action, or what's the highest AC you've had. It's always been what's the funniest adventure, what's the weirdest thing that's happened, even in the playtest. And so that's where we want to focus our attention. Awesome, thank you. Alright, so one of the best
1: things I thought about you is the way in the encounters you can build really unique, kind big
6: fall.
4: battles. What are you going to do this in next that's going to help us build those same kind of style of battles that will, you know, make minimal climactic battles at the end of the adventure? So the, um, it's actually going to be a lot of the same tech that you've seen in fourth. so we still have a concept of like the solo. Uh, and, and so if you look at the monster doc right now, there's actually some funny things in the monster doc. Uh, we have we include an XP value, a level, and then a type like solo or elite. Uh, and there's some irregularity in the experience points values. Some people have pointed out, like why is this guy worth two? The cobalt's worth two hundred, and the gelatinous cube is worth fifty. What's up with that, right? The, um, so there's still some things we're working through in the XP value. Part of it's going to be just when we, we, when we start asking people playdust we're going to ask you like, hey, what was the deadliest monster? Things like that. But we, you know, rather than uh, starting kind of put this. One of the things I think we did that was kind of a misstep was to say, well, let's start with a leader solo, and then we can apply that to anything. So you could have, like, a solo orc, and we just give him a lot of attacks, so but you're just like, well, why is that guy solo? What's he actually doing? Um, what we'd rather do to start out with is say, well, what's actually truly a monstrous, powerful creature, like a dragon? Does it make sense that a dragon could fight a group of adventurers. Well, kind of going back to our example of the town guard or whatever, you can imagine, yeah, if a dragon attacks a town, that dragon's not fighting one guard at a time. It's like it's breathing fire. It's swooping over and and just ripping through the ranks of pikemen and stuff. It's got a lot of attacks, right? It might not be doing eight attacks against one guy. It's doing eight attacks against the entire, you know, the huddling mass of militiamen who are about to panic, you know, things like that. And that's when you kind of say, okay, well, this is a solo in terms of the rules because it's a creature that's really good at fighting lots of other creatures. Um, at once because that's just its niche you know dragons are loners right you don't have gangs or dragons hanging out dragons like to be alone because they're also powerful enough and they can fend for themselves and so that's sort of on one end just the monster end then on the other end um, when we we're talking about those sort of monster abilities one of the really fun things for instance in the packet right now there's an ability called rage and rage is just represents like you a know, monster going kind of nuts and almost a barbarian rage kind of thing One of the really nice advantages of having those keywords and having those things be easy to pick up on is when we we make kind of like the boss monsters, the leaders, the champions, we can do things like, here's the um, orc uh, war priest of Groomsh. And he can cast a spell that says, hey, every creature that has rage goes into, like, super rage mode, right? Like, he calls upon Grim Grimsh, you know, give strength to my tribe, right? And so we know, okay, all orcs have rage, but you know what? Also, the, the chaotic evil barbarians that are kind of allied with these guys, well, they have rage too, right? And things like that. So you, as a DM, you can kind of see how those bosses, you know, a leader in 4E terms they have these connected pieces. So you can look at it and think, okay, I want to really use, like, say, the cunning kobold guy. Well, you know, he's got this hes alchemist and he's throwing these weird potions and stuff at the party. Uh, And maybe one of his things (coughs) makes animals go berserk, right? Because it's got a pheromone or something in it. So you go, okay, well, animals, and you can kind of, again, make that connection. Well, here are the animals in the monster manual. So those would make really logical, you know, monsters for this guy to work with. So again, those kind of boss fights that are more, it's a group of guys, it's a leader, you know, the, the commander, the evil paladin, or things like that. The, um, so that's another area where those abilities go. So you can kind of go from getting yeah, the giant, the single powerful monster, to like the group of monsters, and we want to be able to enable both, like the small skirmish, and that big climactic, you know, you know, boss fight. And that also speaks like the terrain features and interesting stuff you can put into your into the environment. And that's another area where things like the shrieker, the yellow mole, monsters that are just kind of terrain features can come into play, because then you could have things like, um, you know you're fighting the zombie master and he keeps a bunch of gas spores around because gas spores are poisonous and zombies can't be hurt by poison. So if a a zombie happens to set off a gas spore, you just got zombies covered in spores, which maybe makes them deadlier now, right? Like, but things like that, where again, we're kind of putting those connected things and can give you things that make sense in the world where one of the things I really love to have is if you say, hey, you know, we're going up against the cult of Baphomet, well, there'll be minotaurs. Well, there will probably also be orcs because that makes sense. Orcs have a lot of fury and rage and they're kind of drawn to Baphomet, so these kind of renegade cultists and other monsters that all start. And then maybe Wolverine And Wolverine has the rage ability as an animal. Well, that's what the guy's going to keep as a pet. Well, that makes sense. He's a cultist of Baphomet. He sees that rage in the Wolverine, and that's like, that would be a you know, desired pet if you can tame one or break one and make it obey him. That's like a sign of his strength, you know, things like that.
3: As a uh, DM who's had a lot of experience building climactic encounters, as Jeremy can attest, yes, um, I want out of a system the I don't want any constraints placed on me because of numbers. Like if I want a climactic encounter with a dragon and I decide the night before the game that, oh, it would be even more fun if there were like bungee jumping kobolds that just sort of plopped down into the battle and then shot back up and plopped down into the battle and shot back up and you could never hit them because they were never there long enough. I don't want to then go to a book and see, oh, the kobolds are too low level. They don't work with this dragon. I can't use them i got to come up with something else. I want those limitations taken away so that, yeah, I get my bungee jumping kobolds and they're actually part of that encounter and they feel like a threat in that encounter. Um, Even though they might be significantly less powerful individually than the dragon. If my creativity is not being curtailed, then I consider the system a success. It has given me what I need as a DM. I think that's what we're striving to accomplish. Absolutely. So,
4: one of the uh, one of the limiting factors or the variables for growing our hobby is um, is multiplying DMs. Because ultimately you could have all the players in the world, but you can only run so many games with so many DMs. And so, multiplying DMs is an important part of growing our hobby.
0: Go ahead um, and breed all of you. <laughs> <laughs> and
4: uh,
3: they are, they are. And, um, and two, I can tell that one of the priorities is making DMing easier. Um, is there any discussion of of developing some type of initiative to grow DMs.
4: Absolutely. And yes. to, to, to teach storytelling. Exactly. I mean, this is one of the things where, um, one of the things I, and, and again, this is, this is all just in the planning stages, but you know, when we kind of think of like products and stuff, you, know, you kind of have to cut the column for like, what are we going to sell, right? And yay, because companies like money, right? But there's also the thing of like, well, what are we going to do in the sense of, we have a community of people, how can we help that community get the resources it needs? And I think one of the mistakes we've kind of made in the past is to say, "Well, we're going to sell you a game that teaches you how to play," or "We're going to like half the DMG is going to here's how to be a DM." I'd rather just be able to make that stuff free, because and just easily available online because that that just helps everybody, right? And like, why like, it's it's kind of lame if you have a, you know, it, it, there are certain hobbies where like if you want to have a you know, play golf like you have to pay to play golf and that stuff, right? But you know, they put things like golf tournaments on TV that you can just watch, and that's how you kind of hook people in. And I think that's kind of what D&D needs, is that sort of like, hey, I'm just kind of curious about this, I want to learn more, okay, now that I see what it is, I'm really excited about it, right, now I really want to get into it. I don't think anyone would play golf if golf courses were walled off and golf was never shown on TV, like, what is this thing, right, like, you have to have a lot of faith that it's pretty cool to throw down your 200 bucks for clubs and then go to the course and hope you enjoy it. And I think D&D kind of struggles with that sometimes. That it is fairly opaque to outsiders, and they can't—they don't really have an easy way to get a taste of it. Now we've seen with the Encounters program that we do have a lot of people showing up to play who haven't played before, and the trick is how do we do that for DMs and things like that? How do we get those? Hey, I'm showing up because I want to try DMing, or you know, things like that. So.
0: I, th- I think what I hear Mike saying is that we need to put Chris Perkins' Dungeon Master to the Stars on television. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a scary prospect.
4: <laughs> but, but it's funny, but you think about it, I mean, today, like, television yeah. to a lot of people is YouTube, and I can oh, definitely absolutely. put it on YouTube, yeah. Yeah. you know, and we have put him on yeah. YouTube, and right? A lot of people yeah.
1: got the system from watching our podcast. Yeah, to your
3: yeah. yeah I, get, I get emails every day, every day, like, long after I've left this world, that's what I'm going to be remembered for those Penny <laughs> Arcade podcasts, um, but everyday people who just catch those videos saying, this is how I got started. Started. This is how I'm DMing. Mm-hmm. Um, we have all these tools available. OP. We have uh, video feeds. We have acquisition products. We have all these opportunities, and we're going to try to exploit them all. Yeah.
4: Okay. Just an observation from even yesterday, um, in some of the Q and A, a lot of the questions could be answered by better DMs. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah.
6: Yeah.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Um, you touched earlier on, well, just a second ago, you talked about play testing, uh, not play testing, public play. Uh, that's my question. I mean, you have this DD Next, which is, I think it's great. It satisfies a, a lot of players' creativity, DM creativity, they can play, like you said, with map, without map, all that stuff. Now, when I I'm a huge fan of public play, how is that, how is DD Next going to affect public play? Because you've got 20 people that are going into the store that want to play this this module Lord adventure or whatever it is, but then you have half the players that don't want to play with the map, half the players that want to play with the map, how are you going to satisfy that?
4: So one of the things that, that one of our goals for, for, for public play, for organized play, is to be pretty clear about, um, to start with, like, if we have a program, like Living Forgotten Realms or Living Greyhawk, it's pretty clear like, what people are expecting. You know, it's almost like we're going to pick some rules modules, and say, okay, this is, these are kind of the ground rules for, for how to play here. The other thing I think is important for us, like kind of going back to the DMing thing, is finding ways to let people find each other and find the styles of games they want to play. So the, um, I think what I like us to end up having is a pretty clear program of, hey, in public play, this is how it works. Like if you want to play Living Forgotten Realms, here here are the floor rules. Like we assume you're using these rules modules and these character resources. And then I think the other side is for DMs who want to make their own adventures and who maybe want to play in public, Finding a way to to link people up, you know, almost like like, uh, like with Friday Night Magic. We
2: we are assuming that in the sort of the majority of cases, a typical adventure is is going to feature a mix of you know, theater of the mind style play and miniatures use. Um, because we have found, and, and we, have, we have found through the play test, happily, that many people who came in thinking, you know, I want miniatures for every single encounter, there's no way I want to play Theater of the Mind style. But once they've played enough and realized, wait a second, that engagement we had with just a handful of orcs went so much faster because we didn't use minis. But then it was awesome to pull out the grid and minis for the big set piece encounter with the bungee jumping kobolds and the dragon thrashing around in the cavern with great stalag- stalagmites and stalactites. It, there's an ebb and flow that actually starts to come naturally in the DMing process where you realize, well, I don't really need uh, the grid here, but in another place where it, it really does enhance the play experience. Well,
5: I agree. I did play test yesterday and that's the first time since I was a teen that I played with a grin, I was like, wow, is this? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. interesting, so thanks for your um, Again, in
0: the, in the spirit of we're, this is directional, yeah. we're going to start experimenting with d encounters after the current season, or the one that's just started, and, and test out some of our theories about the way that d is played uh, in store. And really, that's all I'm going
3: to say. <laughs>
4: Uh, my question is about the uh, magic items you're talking about. How they would be a lot more um, uh, story-driven or cool powers that the players would have. Um, at the same time, there's also those mechanical tweaks that we make. Um, Fourth Edition, we had like the plus three elven cloak, where it helps you hide, but it also helps you with your defenses. You know, your um, everything except AC goes up as well. Where are the mechanics going to be going? Um, if I want, I mean, are they going to be totally in the background? Are we going to have a module similar to the inherent bonuses where all all the magic items are basically cool powers and if you want the magic, there it is, and how are you going to account for that fighter getting his first just flat plus one sword and getting excited about that?
2: So, the, the game will absolutely still have uh, the, the enhancement bonuses that it has always had, going back to first edition, because I mean, really, we could not publish a version of Dungeons and Dragons that did not have a plus one sword in it. Um, I mean, we'd we'd have to you know put paper bags over our heads if we, if we did such a thing. Um, I
0: think we might also need the minus one cursed berserking sword. <laughs>
2: That's right. Um, uh, so so those those sort of math tweak things will still exist and and. Part of the reason for that is a lot of people desire that kind of simplicity, but the other thing is, is given our approach to the math, a plus one sword is awesome, and and in fact will be relevant for most of a character's career. Uh, they could get a plus one sword, and that thing is still going to be awesome at tenth level, um, and so so that will still be there, and it and it will it will meet our our requirement that it be wondrous because, it's, again, it's simply awesome.
6: Thank you. Hi, yes, I'm one of the newer DMs that I started
1: after listening to the Arcade Podcast. Um, I wanted to build up earlier question about, you mentioned a few times that DMs are a dying breed. There's, there's not enough DMs out there
0: in some ways. Um, I think one of the it's reasons not that DMs are a dying breed, it's that players are a growing breed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just outpacing Outpacing. Yeah. So, I think one of the reasons is as a player,
1: because I play in DM, so as a player, between the two weeks when we have our campaign, I don't really do anything. I don't yeah. look at my character sheet, I, I look, maybe think about, okay, what's the next thing that I'm going to pick, but I just show up and play, but as a DM, I might spend three to 20 hours thinking about the campaign, preparing it, and I wonder how do you try to balance that out a little bit? I mean, DM's probably going to have more work to do. I know you spoke about earlier with him about just how to make DMing a little bit easier. Um, How do you see that happening in the next?
0: So there are always going to be DMs who want to spend that time. who are, are really in it for the world building and the adventure design and the, the grand, sweeping scope of the campaign that they want to plan out. And there will also always be DMs who would just as soon pick up a freaking awesome adventure off the shelf and run it with the minimum of preparation. And uh, our goal is to serve both of those people.
4: Yeah, uh, really the important thing we want to make sure is that, that uh, the stuff you're doing between, between uh, sessions is fun. As a DM, you're enjoying yourself. It doesn't feel like, I have to slog through this, or I'm stuck I have to this. design
0: how many draft stat blocks yeah. to do the by- Spider
4: Exactly, but, but it feels much more enjoyable, but it feels like a hobby, right? Like when you're doing it, you feel like, oh, this is taking my mind off work, whatever, and I'm I like, I'm looking forward to doing it. The uh, So I think that's one of our big things. We talk about making the system pretty transparent and easy to work with, so you don't feel like you're filling on filling out your tax return. You feel more like, oh, this is this is as fun as playing D and D. And you're
0: spending your time thinking about so, the story so, and not the stats. Also. Yeah. Thanks.
5: Thank
2: we we so. have about ten more minutes for questions, yeah. so we'll try to get to all of you. Um, just this is your ten minute warning. I will set one more trivia question, but we'll save that
4: to the end.
5: My question will only be nine minutes. <laughs> I want to know which of the most amount of damage you've done, Donald <laughs> 431. <laughs> one of the things I really loved about 4th edition when it came out is the reduction in the amount of time I had to spend mechanically making encounters be balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, I think rule systems exist to service role-playing as you run in the background. Right? And the mm-hmm. thing I love about fourth edition is when I want to build an encounter, I spend minutes, just minutes, making sure that my character's going to do what they need to be, if, if there isn't a landmine, the system really works, right, mm-hmm. if, you, if you just followed it. And if I don't like a rule, I just break it or ignore it. Good, yep. I yep. can't action. even tell them. Right? Good. Um, the erasing the name on monster and changing it seems to work just fine. Mm-hmm. As we move to a world with a more modular rule set, as the base rules become very lean and I now have to select the other rules that I want, it seems to me inevitable that some of that is going to be lost, and the trade-off for your modular rule set is that I can't just run in the background. I've got to make more active decisions about what rules I want and effectively spend more time thinking about game balance, which to me is a loss to my role-playing time, because I'm happy lying to my player, so right? I game balance is, so, is solved. Do you agree with me that that slider bar exists, and how much should I be worried that the more modular your rules are, the more time i got to spend
4: so, the important thing to keep in mind is we want that modularity to be along the lines of like you're opting into it because you want that complexity. Or, like, I guess for an example, is like in your mind, like, what do you see a, a rules module looking like?
5: The, I guess the, the thing that I like about the existing system is that if I choose the four books and run them, it is balanced without me doing sense. One of y'all is smart to figure that out. I don't know which one it is, but I don't need to do. Oh, okay to negatively balanced. Whereas
4: <laughs> when I show up to a menu, you can mess up the Chinese meal. Ah, So yeah, so right? so exactly, oh you totally can, right? Whereas if so, I show up
5: you beat me what's good, I'm all sad. So I'm happy that you beat me what's
4: good. This is this is one of the important things that we want to make sure that we get right. And uh, it's gonna be a balancing act, but uh, no, pun not intended. With a simple core, that each module just plugs directly into the core and that that connection works and it's independent of any other connections you want. So if you decide, for instance, I want to use firearms, so that's the rules module I'm gonna use. And I'm going to use really like the detailed tactical combat rules, and those plug in. That those two, like, they're working directly, they interact through the core system. So that lets us, when we strike that balance, if we know, okay, if the connection from A to B is good, then the connection of B into A then over into C is also going to be good, because it's all running through that same core. So what we want to avoid, and where I think that could happen is, I add firearms rules, then I add this other thing to the firearms rules, which I add another thing into it, and now all these unintended consequences come up what we have to make sure we're doing is if everything's running through the core and we know within the core we have like our range of what we can do, that if everything's following those specs, it's kind of like adding uh, modules to an operating system or something like that, right? That they're all work playing nice with the central administrative kernel and as long as no one's screwing up the kernel, everything else is going to work because the balance elements really just come down to the math so we and and also comes down to how we approach stacking. So if we get stacking right and we get the math right, then you can at, start adding in new stuff and they're all working within the same parameters. So yeah, it, it's definitely it, we we totally know that that's going to be a challenge for us, but but the ideal world for us, our goal is to make sure that if you do hey, I want to use this module, this module, this module, it is in the background. You're not worried about oh, but now this is broken. But it's
0: not going to change the way you have to build encounters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, because
4: yeah, to be absolutely clear, a thing like
2: being able to easily make encounters the way you can in 4th edition that to us is not optional yep. that's a part of the core Exactly. because if, if, if there's something that's about sort of like fundamental quality of life for the dungeon master that is not going to reside in an optional module, okay. that's yeah, exactly. a part of our core
5: system <laughs> um, yeah.
2: and, 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 and we, we are not going to budge an inch on any of those quality of life things that, that we have all enjoyed in 4th edition yeah. Uh, if it's a quality of life thing that has to do with building encounters and easily making adventures that's in the core yeah. that, that is not living in, in an optional module
0: in fact one of the most recent writing monkey projects that Jeremy handed to me was to make a pass over the DM packet and uh, the text that's in there about building encounters much of it is lifted word for word from the fourth edition <laughs> text on the same subject so it, it's the same process
5: so, so we agree. The best use of the DM time is making up funny voices, and you're not going to Yes. yes. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> because
2: the our 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 vision our vision for for rules options, which we sometimes refer to as modules, both on the DM side and the player side, is for for them to be large and evocative. Like M- Mike Mike uses a great e- part. No. <laughs> um, Mike uses a great example when he talks about firearms rules. You know that it's. It's something that has a would have a obvious narrative impact and is a world building tool on the DM side. It when we talk about rules modules, we're not talking about. And here's where you opt into
4: not having a horrible time. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
5: um, <laughs> Sign me up. But
4: but, 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 the, but the reverse might be no, but, no, but the reverse might be true in the sense of we might say, look, you want to run a super lethal campaign here's a rules module that has like infections or whatever, the low hit point rule. And so anything that's really gonna change that internal balance is gonna be very clearly labeled. Because we don't want people accidentally adding infection rules to their wounds. We'll go, oh no, I'm running the really gritty and it's bandages and now all this stuff and sawbones and you're losing limbs. That's in the module, so you know you're not gonna accidentally stumble across it. We're not gonna hide that, oh and by the way the, the bullet wounds now are forcing you to leave the firearms rules include you know losing limbs and hit locations. Like we're not gonna do that. Yeah. We, we,
2: we we demonstrate this approach uh, in in a very small way in the latest version of the playtest packet in the rest rules. Uh, this is the first time we put into the playtest packet uh, rules variance. And we tell you if you want a, a harsher game where it is more difficult for players to recover from their injuries, go ahead and opt into one of these options. But the baseline, the one that's in the core, is the one that again sort of preserves basic quality of life at the table.
5: I promise to on one more question. So do you imagine when you, when you come to game, a spec sheet of sorts. Yeah. I'm running a game and there's going to be 15 boxes. I'm going to check seven. My players will know what the deal is. They can do it on your website. And I basically have created one set of rules by clicking boxes and we're all going to use that.
4: Yeah, exactly. And I don't know that this is like, you know, the, the web and all that stuff. But, but to me, it's going to be a lot like when you say, hey, I'm, going to, I'm running a new campaign and it's set in, it's, it's Renaissance Italy with magic in it and there's firearms and the church, the Catholic church has been cast this way and, and everyone hates wizards and they're, they're outcasts. So have that kind of same narrative thing, or like we talk about, like the sorcerer. Like you might say, in my campaign, we don't have wizards; sorcerers are taking on that role. Things like that. So. All right, I heard you guys talking earlier
1: about putting the wonder back in magic items and talking about things like wings of flying, and they just let you fly. Have you thought about how extensive you're going to have to be? to
5: tell Move your Masters how things like Wings of Fly will absolutely devastate any of their exploration because they
1: might not understand that when yeah. they hand out Wings mm-hmm. of Fly, all of a sudden they have
5: these orcs that are supposed to come on the trail and the party's like Orcs on the trail <laughs> and,
4: so, and that is literally when you use Wings of flying <laughs> So I, I, I was wondering whether or not you guys thought about how much
5: room that's going to actually have to take up Mm-hmm. In the magic item section, for newer Dungeon Masters to really
1: understand yeah. mm-hmm. how these things are going to affect combat exploration. Mm-hmm.
4: Well, things no,
6: things.
4: and that's what's nice about when we kind of have this idea. We get, oh, here are the kind of three things I have to think about. Uh, there's two ways we can do it. So you can imagine in like the sort of core, like here is D and D, here's where you start, whatever that that product or that thing is. We'll probably want to make sure the magic item list there. It's pretty simple, straightforward, because you know, especially like if you're not super into the game, like a plus one sword is a really cool item, right like you, you haven't seen this stuff before, but that also goes back to us making sure we're helping dms serve as good dms and if we're removing that idea of like that of that advice having to be put into a book we're selling to or we're relying on things like just you know advice like on a wiki or things like that that anyone can access, we can be a lot more uh, extensive in what we're talking about. it's a more formal thing, and we could you know, you could even imagine like uh you know, just a list of, here, here's like the three pillars and here's magic items that'll wreck each pillar. We just list them, right? But it's, if it's a resource we have out there, DMs, you know, you can search it, right? You can Google it, you can find it. And so when we're moving away from saying all oh, this DM advice has to be in the DMG, we can make a resource for you. And again, this is all just speculative now. We don't have anything specific to announce, but it gives us a lot more flexibility to be very directive in how we give DMs advice. We're not worried about, oh, we only have 800 words to address this. How can we cover all this stuff? You know, we can be more focused on tending, creating good DMs, building up skills, and take very specific, and that's like one of our things we really have to be focused on, so. All right, thank you. And this is probably gonna be our last question, unless it's super short. <laughs> You're good,
2: short. <Sure> <laughs> <laughs> so back here raised a good
6: question, I think you guys really touched on the first half when
2: you talked about DM engagement and effort between sessions
1: versus player engagement activity between sessions and I see this all the time in every campaign, every session, is players literally, like he said, they show up, they sit down, they play their character, they haven't looked at their character sheet between sessions for the last two weeks or however long it's been. Is there any kind of concepts of how to try to maybe increase the engagement of the player? And I know that's something that GMs or DMs can try to make more effort on their part to try to engage the player between sessions, but is there anything in the core world or anything you guys are thinking about the way you can help increase the player activity and thoughtfulness of effort between sessions? keep them thinking about things. Yeah, I think that there's a number
3: of things that we could do. Um, of course we're just speculating at this point, but uh, the idea that DMs could email the players half, you know, halfway between sessions and say, "Hey, I'd like to get a list of the three things that you'd like to see most happen in the campaign so that I can plan going forward." Those kinds of triggers, getting the DM to sort of send out these prompts for information gets the players thinking off time about where they want the campaign to go, what they want to happen to their characters, things like that. I think a lot of that could be sort of built into the advice of the game, uh, wherever that happens to lie. Yeah, I don't think
0: we want to hard hard code it into the rules that players have to spend more time between sessions. That that's a, a lot of people are players because they precisely because they don't want to or they don't have time to. So, um, like Chris says, I think there are lots of ways we can help the ends encourage it, um, but we don't want to force it.
2: And, and there are already in the playtest packet uh, sort of directional indicators for players being more engaged with the story of the game. Uh, just, just take a look at the descriptions of the various backgrounds. Uh, one, of, one of the reasons why we're very excited about player character backgrounds is right from the start, uh, a, a well-done background grounds a character in the world. I mean, knowing that your character was a blacksmith or a noble uh, or a knight or a sage suddenly that is saying all of these potentially rich things about your character that can have all sorts of payoff in the campaign and, and is likely to, to spark the player's imagination thinking about what can their... I send my retinue to do yes, yeah. yes, yeah, exactly with the noble
4: and, and his lackeys carrying his crossbow.
2: Chris, you're noble in the playtest yes, he he had did. lackeys,
4: right? Yes he did. He had yeah. lackeys. Oh well, this is uh, sorry I thought I, Lord, I, I, Lord I, Milton Bradley was I, his name. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> we take
6: our playthilton very
4: seriously. And, and, right. and in true DD tradition I had to tell you about our game. Uh, okay. Chris was it was a very heroic nobleman who like what did you like you know there was a battle, like an ogre popped up out of the woods and the player, oh no God's an ogre and uh, Chris's character valiantly turns to his lackeys and says Flee, you know, and tell people. Was it? Yeah, yes. Flee and save yourselves, and then we roll initiative. And his lackeys won initiative. So his lackeys carrying his crossbow (laughs) (laughs) turned and ran into the forest. (laughs) Come back. Yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah, that was also the game where. We, I chastised
3: them when they returned after the owner was like, yes. How dare you follow my orders?
4: <laughs> that was also the campaign. Your character was almost eaten by a, by a, a gray ooze. Yes. And his almost dying words he was saved were, Tell people I was eaten by a bear! Which, <laughs> which, funnily enough, if you read The Caves of Chaos, there was an owl bear just down the hall who heard him yelling and came and immediately after five. It almost came true. Awesome. All right, our final
2: trivia question.
3: All right, um, so this trivia question has nothing to do with old adventures. I have an open seat at my celebrity game table at 3 p.m. in this room today. And if you are interested in being a player and joining myself, James Wyatt, Ed Greenwood, and others, uh, then you may want to answer this question. And in the theme of the Rise of the Underdark campaign, this is a drow-related question. In first edition, what, were, what was drow armor and weapons made of? Yes, sir.
1: Adamantine.
3: Adamantine. Would you like to actually join the game? I would. In that case, uh, after this is over, come up and I'll take your name, so that you're allowed in during the event <laughs> and people know to expect you. Thank you. And, uh, <laughs>
6: congratulations.
2: All right, thank you very much everyone for joining us at this panel. Uh, please continue to play test and please continue to send us your feedback.